Welcome to the Mind and Matter Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today my guest is Dr. Paul Barrett. Professor Barrett is an internationally leading paleontologist. He has spent almost 30 years studying the evolution and biology of dinosaurs and other extinct reptiles. He is currently working at the Natural History Museum in London, where he called in from, and he's authored or co-authored more than 200 scientific papers related to dinosaur evolution and paleontology. He was a wealth of information. This was just a topic I was personally curious about. I've always been interested in dinosaurs as an amateur, I guess. And we covered a lot of ground. I asked him about what dinosaurs actually are. How do they define them in paleontology? What specifically are dinosaurs compared to other reptiles? When did dinosaurs first evolve and what did they look like and what do we know about them? How long ago was that? How did dinosaurs change over time as they took over the world, so to speak? And of course, we talked about the extinction of the dinosaurs. We talked about the big meteor impact that was important for that, as well as other factors for that extinction and other past mass extinction events. I asked him about everything from dinosaur morphology and how the look of dinosaurs changed over time to dinosaur physiology and metabolism and what we can learn actually from fossil bones about growth rates and even things like color and plumage and physiology of dinosaurs. We talked about how smart they may have been and what how big their brains were compared to their bodies. I asked about velociraptors and the evolution of birds. We talked about T-Rex. And at the end, I even asked him about the movie Jurassic Park. So if you're interested in dinosaurs and evolution and mass extinction events, and what all of that stuff might actually help teach us about the present moment of life on Earth. This will be an interesting episode to listen to. As always, if you want to support the podcast further, please like, share, subscribe. One big thing you can do is simply share your favorite episode on social media or simply tell a friend or family member about an episode that you found particularly interesting. You can sign up for my free weekly Mind and Matter newsletter at mindandmatter.substack.com. I give weekly updates, including upcoming guests. I share a bunch of interesting research that's going on in the research world related to topics that I discuss on the podcast, as well as other interesting content. You can also subscribe on YouTube if you want to watch the video version of the show, and you can become a supporting member by getting a paid subscription on Substack for as little as $5 per month. All those things help me keep doing the podcast and increase the production quality. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure, and vitamin D 
is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. Today's show is brought to you in part by Dosist, an all-natural cannabis company specializing in dose-controlled cannabis products made with plant-based ingredients. To learn more about Dosist, their products, and where they are available, please visit their website through the link in the episode description. And with that, here's my episode with Professor Paul Barrett. Professor Paul Barrett, thank you for joining me. Hi, how are you doing today? I'm well, I'm well. How are you and where are you calling in from? Uh, so I'm calling in from London, where I'm based, where it's currently a fairly bright and sunny winter afternoon. Excellent. Um, can you start off by just letting everyone know who, who are you? What do you do and, and what's your scientific background? So I'm based at the Natural History Museum in London. I'm a paleontologist and I specialize on the biology and the evolution of uh, the non-bird dinosaurs. The non-bird dinosaurs. So I already have a million questions, but let's start with something very basic. What are dinosaurs in proper terms? How do you actually define that scientifically? So dinosaurs are a specific group of reptiles that are distinguished from all other reptiles by a set of features that they share that they inherited from their common ancestor, who, which was an animal that would have been alive about 240 million years ago. Uh, those features are all really rather esoteric features, and they're mainly to do with the fact that dinosaurs, very unusually for reptiles, walk on their hind legs. And so they modified their back legs and their hips and their backbones and various other bits of their body to cope with that anatomical change. And that's actually how we define a dinosaur. It's to do with a lot of features of their legs and hips. Interesting. So I, I was going to ask later on about um, bipedality and things like that, because it certainly to an amateur seems like there's a lot of um, dinosaurs that walked on two legs, but you're actually saying that this was, this was a defining feature. Absolutely right. So it's the other way around. The first dinosaur that we would recognize as a dinosaur walked on two legs, which is really unusual. It doesn't happen very often in the history of life. The most obvious things that walk on two legs other than humans are birds, which are actually dinosaurs, which is something I guess we'll get back to. And a couple of other things, a few weird things, things like pangolins and to some extent kangaroos and mm. one or two lizards and one or two rodents, but not very many things have done it. So dinosaurs really bizarre in being this big group of animals that learn how to walk on its hind legs only. And the original dinosaur was a biped. All the ones that we see later on that go down onto all fours are actually going back onto all fours uh, rather than starting off that way. Uh, so that another really weird thing about their evolution is they go through this amazing transformation to become two-legged animals. And then some of them give it up and go hmm. back to being on four legs. Interesting. Um, I think at the beginning here, we can start approximately with some um, 
chronological question. So you've mentioned so far that the earliest dinosaurs were actually walking on their hind legs. I think you said that they emerged roughly a quarter of a billion years ago, 240 million years ago. Can you set that time period up for us? So before the first dinosaur evolved, what was the world dominated by in terms of the animals that were around? And then what did, what did that first sort of evolutionary phase look like? How did they start to emerge? So we're going back to a period of the Earth's history called the Triassic period. And the Triassic period is the first of three periods in which dinosaurs lived, the Triassic, the famous Jurassic, and the Cretaceous. And the Triassic begins after a huge mass extinction event 250 million years ago, where about 97% of the animals that lived on land died out. Um, this was a major event which created a huge amount of empty ecological space on the planet, which then new groups of animals evolved to fill in. So uh, we have a world at the beginning of the Triassic period that's not particularly diverse, that doesn't have lots and lots of different animals around, uh, but does have lots of opportunities for newly evolving animals to find different ways of life. And if we're talking about the geography of that time, the Earth also looks quite different. Uh, all of the world's continents at that point are joined together. Um, into a single landmass called Pangaea, uh, which would have essentially had a single coastline going all the way around, no big seas or anything like that separating the continents. And as a result of that, the climate at the time was also very different. It was much warmer. It was uh, much less seasonal, uh, with fewer mm. differences between winter and summer. And the interior of that continent was largely composed of searing deserts, while the outsides were a bit nicer to live in, but still had to put up with very monsoonal-type climates, ranging between extremely wet and extremely dry, depending on the time of year. What, um, so before the dinosaurs emerge, what kind of what kind of animals were around? Like, was there, was there any major patterns there? There were. So before dinosaurs were around, the predominant type of animal that you would have seen everywhere was something called a synapsid. And these are animals that used to be called mammal-like reptiles, uh, but aren't actually reptiles. Uh, these are animals that are our own um, very distant evolutionary ancestors. Mm. And these uh, would have been occupying most of the different roles of top predator, top plant eater, and were very abundant at the time as well. So if you like, these were the, kind of, uh, the top ecological dogs of their day. They were the kind of bread and butter animals you would have seen walking around. And the vegetation we saw at the time would have also been quite different. Um, we're used to living in a world filled with grasses and flowering plants and shrubs. Uh, in, those in those times, there are no flowering plants, so no flowers. Instead, the uh, vegetation is dominated by things like ferns, mm. tree ferns, um, primitive trees like ginkgos, um, uh, conifers. So it would have even looked, in terms of the vegetation, looked a very different place, so a lot hotter, a lot more inhospitable, uh, certainly in some areas, and also just the general landscapes would have looked very unfamiliar to most of us. So at the time at the time that the first dinosaurs were evolving 240 million years ago and even before that there was these things called synapsids and they were the basically the precursors to mammals and I guess my my secondary question there is was the mammalian lineage already evolving at the time of the earliest dinosaurs 
That's absolutely right. So the synapsids are our early ancestors. They were already developing features at that time that we would recognize in mammals. They were starting to experiment with things like fur and mm. mammary glands. And the very earliest true mammals that uh, paleontologists recognize as mammals occur at about the same time as the first dinosaurs. So dinosaurs and mammals have lived alongside each other for almost all of their evolutionary histories. I see. So if you go all the way back to the beginning of the dinosaurs, mammals were pretty much already there. We were always side by side. Dinosaurs won in the sense that for a long time, they became the dominant uh, animal type. And I guess we'll talk about that. And then eventually um, we'll get to the extinction and, and the mammals sort of take over after that. Is that roughly what happened? That's exactly right. So to start with, mammal ancestors were the most common and abundant animals. Then for reasons we don't really fully understand, they kind of have their heyday. They have an extinction um, at the end of the Triassic period and they reduce in numbers, although true mammals still hang on there. They remain there all the way through the time that dinosaurs take over. And then when dinosaurs are removed from the picture a few million years later, mammals become again the most important land-living animals. Mm -hmm. So... There's a few things I want to do. I definitely want to ask about some of the patterns that we see in the fossil record going from Triassic, Jurassic to Cretaceous. I want to ask some specific morphology and other questions, but maybe before that, it would be good to talk about fossilization as a process itself. Can you give us, can you give us a quick like fossilization 101 in terms of how that happens and then how maybe how that introduces bias into what kind of dinosaurs and other animals we actually see in the fossil record? Sure, I'd be happy to. So becoming fossilized is itself uh, an unusually rare event. Uh, what happen has to happen is the animal has to die in a place where it's going to be buried relatively quickly, which means it's living in an environment where there's lots of mud or sand uh, around to bury it fast enough before the body just disintegrates due to scavengers coming along and pulling it apart or the ravages of weather helping it to disintegrate as the animal rots down. So these are often places like animals that die uh, near on floodplains or that get swept into a river or buried by a, a sand dune or float at sea and get buried on the seafloor. So the key thing is quick burial. Uh, and one of the reasons why many um, fossils are incomplete is because of that process. It's because at some point in that process, uh, another scavenger comes on, takes a bit, a part rots away, the current removes part of it before it gets entombed and sealed in the rock. So once it's buried, it basically then gets compacted in those soft sediments that then gradually over time turn into rock. Uh, the bones or the shells themselves often become replaced by slightly different minerals that come in through the water that are flowing through those rocks uh, as they form. And eventually, after a lot of alteration with a lot of heat and a lot of pressure, a fossil is formed. And for obvious reasons, we, uh, we generally get fossils of the hard parts of an animal, the bones or shells, uh, whereas the soft parts generally just rot away. So it's very rare that we get evidence of the soft parts. We do sometimes. Uh, but mostly we're left with the hard parts of the animal and those are the bits of evidence that we have then to try and work out how they lived and how they interacted with each other. Is there anything um, like the classic amateur image of a dinosaur is of a quite a large organism? The, the size and the so physical size of the bones have anything to do with their um, preservation qualities? Do we see a bias for like big animals or is that not true? 
Uh, actually, rather oddly, we get more fossils of little animals. Mm. And that's for a couple of different reasons. One reason is simply that at any one time, there are more little animals alive. Uh, just due to basic rules of ecology, there are always lots of small things and relatively few large things. The other thing that counts against getting big animals is that uh, there's a lot of that animal to bury. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are lots of bits of that animal that scavengers and predators can take away. So finding really complete large animals is relatively rare. Saying that, some large bits of large animals, say, for example, a thigh bone, because they're large lumps of bone and they're quite strong, they can hang around in the environment quite a long time without being broken down. So finding occasional large bones is fairly common. Finding lots of large bones from a single skeleton together is quite rare. Hmm. So uh, we know a lot more about the history, if you like, the history of life of small animals, because there are a lot more of them and a lot more of their fossils to find um, than we do about the larger ones, which is why we're constantly updating our picture of what dinosaurs and other extinct animals look like as we do find those new specimens coming out. But it takes a lot of effort to mm -hmm. get that new, new data to come to light. Now, on the topic of fossils and, and physically finding these things, you know, the classic image of a paleontologist is someone, you know, taking an educated guess about where to look and going out and, you know, just physically cutting into the rock and, and digging these things out. Obviously, you, you have to dig them out once, once you find them. But I'm wondering if, you know, in the last 5, 10, 20 years, what has the use of technology looked like? in order to get better at finding where the fossils are and getting them out. You know, one image I have in my mind is that that scene at the beginning of Jurassic Park where they're using sonar or something. Do, do you guys have any um, interesting uses of technology that have emerged in the last, say, decade? Unfortunately not. We mainly stick with that traditional method of walking around and looking at the ground. And that hmm. remains the primary way that we find dinosaurs. So although people have experimented with things like ground penetrating radar, it's not actually very helpful. The reason being just the basic physics of it. Uh, those kinds of techniques uh, are looking for differences in density below mm. the ground. And actually, the dinosaur bones are the same density largely or more or less as the rocks that they're found in. Hmm. So those kinds of techniques just generally don't pick up those kinds of subtle differences, unfortunately. So it's not been used very much. Uh, another method that has been tried once or twice is using um, radioactivity to see if we can find dinosaur bones. Because for reasons we don't fully understand chemically, fossil bone, for some reason, soaks up radioactive elements from groundwater, preferentially. Hmm. So they're often a little bit and sometimes quite radioactive. And so people have tried using um, sensitive Geiger counter-based instruments, basically, to hunt for dinosaurs. Uh, but to my knowledge, so far, that's only been done successfully once ever. Um, so again, uh, that partly comes down to equipment, that partly comes down to the fact that, again, uh, you're dealing with um, quite a lot of background information, uh, which is often difficult to um, assess when you're actually just looking for a, potentially a small object in a very large area of rock. Uh, other areas where there is going to be more interest, though, I think, come with drones. 
Mm. So our initial search images, you like, comes down to knowing areas that are good to look for dinosaur fossils and indeed any kind of fossil. So with dinosaurs, we know they lived on the land and we know they lived at certain times. So we're looking for areas with uh, rocks of the right type and of the right age and where and areas where preferably there's not too much vegetation cover because we're looking for things that are weathering out the surface. We don't just go out and dig pits and dig holes because there's very little chance you'd find things at random that way. We need a, some kind of indication. There might be something lurking around nearby. So we go out, we use information that geologists provide us um, because geologists go everywhere in their search for uh, raw materials and to work out how continents are formed and mountains are built. Uh, then we use that as a guide to go to those areas. Sometimes those geologists even notice that there might be a good uh, spot to go and look for those places. Um, but finding those areas is being made a lot quicker by using things like drones, mm. because often you have a lot of ground to cover. And although I don't think anyone's yet found uh, an actual fossil using drones, for example, we do know that um, colleagues of ours who work on human evolution have used Google Maps to find uh, promising cave sites. Mm -hmm. Uh, and they've been using those with some success to narrow down their searches of places that might be good. So I think technologies like that that will help us narrow down those areas to finding the most promising looking areas of eroding or kind of accessible rock in very large landscapes often that are otherwise difficult to check on foot. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's something that is going to become more and more um, useful as and using things like satellite imaging data uh, too. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, you know, that stuff will help at, at the early phases of identifying a promising site. But it sounds like what you more or less said was just based on the physical properties of the fossils themselves and the similarity to the rock they're embedded in, you pretty much got to stick with the old fashioned uh, methods. There's no there's no fancy trick here. Unfortunately not. It is literally walking with your uh, face to the ground hoping that you spot something that looks different from the surrounding rock and sometimes itself that's hard you walk around for a day and you pick up lots of lumps of rock that you think might look like the edge of a bone might look like something slightly different and it turns out to be a pebble or a strange soil concretion or in some cases a dried pit animal dropping all <laughs> of these things you know can have been mistaken by me and colleagues as things that look really interesting you pick them up you get an idea of what actually looks like in the texture of it and then you're able to assess it um, um, a lot of the times you're wrong, other times you get it right. So there's a lot of trial and error mm -hmm. and a lot of um, basic uh, just getting hot and sweaty and walking around and keeping our eyes peeled. Mm -hmm. What are some of the classic or some of the hot spots today where people are pulling a lot of dinosaur bones out of the ground? I vaguely remember as a child learning that, you know, there's certain places in the continental United States that, you know, you find a lot of certain types of dinosaurs. I'm assuming there's at least probably a few places that are hot spots. Is that true? Uh, absolutely. And that comes down to, uh, where the right rocks of the right age are that are collectible at the surface of the earth and where again there's not necessarily that much vegetation in the end in the way and hopefully also not too many things like cities or farms built on top of these places so you can actually access the rocks uh, themselves so uh western north america has been a particular hot spot uh, for dinosaur discoveries in a belt that goes up from essentially along what are now the Rocky Mountains from all the way from New Mexico in the south up into Alberta and Canada. 
And that area has large amounts of dinosaur age rock exposed at the surface in badland type scenery where it's constantly being eroded. And so removing rock, allowing new discoveries to be made all the time. And historically, that entire area has probably fueled most of what we know about dinosaurs, or at least certainly most of what we knew about dinosaurs through most of the early part of the 20th century, like with the richest hunting grounds. Uh, but they're not the only ones. Uh, historically, Europe produced quite a lot of material when people can mine and quarry more by hand. So the earliest discoveries of dinosaurs that were named all come from Europe, which is not really surprising in that there was a lot of industrial activity. So there were lots of quarries. There are lots of rocks of the right age in Europe. Uh, and similarly, it's also just because of the uh, accident of history, the era of the world where these studies began. Mm -hmm. And so there were people looking for this kind of material. Um, Europe still produces new dinosaurs, but at a much lower rate now. Obviously, it's a small land area. There are lots of people in Europe. As a result, lots of the land is taken up by farming and agriculture and urbanization. And as a result, our chances in Europe for finding new material are still there, but they're a bit lower. But the other key players now are, I would say, Eastern Asia. China and Mongolia have vast fossil fields that have been uh, fueling a revolution in dinosaur studies over uh, the last 20 or 30 years, uh, a bit longer in the case of Mongolia, and also Southern South America in Brazil and in particular in Argentina, mm. which also have the advantage of huge open landscapes with rocks of the right age. So uh, many of the most exciting discoveries recently have been coming from those areas of the world. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if what we can do now is um, I'll ask sort of a big, a big question about evolution and you can probably just start to take us through some things and then we'll probably just start diving into some interesting topics that, that you mentioned. But, you know, we start out by saying the dinosaurs properly defined evolved 240 million years ago. That was Triassic area. And then you go from Triassic to Jurassic through Cretaceous and extinction. So I'm wondering if you could just paint with a broad brush. What are some of the big evolutionary trends that you see in the fossil record going from each of those areas to the eras to the next one? And probably along the way, we'll just stop and, and riff on some of those. But you know, from the earliest dinosaurs to the Jurassic, what was changing? Sure. So when we get our first dinosaurs appearing on Earth, uh, our first definite dinosaurs are about 235 million years old. Mm -hmm. And they all look very similar to each other. They're all bipedal. They're all small. Uh, okay. Dinosaurs actually start as not particularly large animals, only about a meter and a half in length. And the other thing about them is they're rare. They don't start immediately as a common group. They start off as animals that are definitely minor players in their ecosystems. And those ecosystems are dominated by these synapsid uh, type animals and also by a large number of other reptiles that are more closely related to crocodiles than they are to dinosaurs. So dinosaurs were very much as small players in this world. And these very early dinosaur fossils are mainly restricted to some South America. So it seems that Southern South America might almost acted like a little bit of a cradle for dinosaur evolution. And we're not sure if they definitely appeared there, but it certainly looks like they were doing very interesting things there at that time. And there's rel relatively little evidence from the rest of the world of dinosaurs being around at that time anywhere else. So it seems that the Southern Hemisphere is key in the origin of dinosaurs. And so these animals are around. And then they persist like that for a few million years. And then 
example of a large extinction event take place at the end of the Triassic period, not just one big extinction, but a kind of several pulses of extinction take place. And that seems to have been the key that then allowed dinosaurs to take over. Those extinctions didn't really affect the dinosaurs very much. We don't know why, although there are various bits of speculation why they didn't seem to affect the dinosaurs. But they did strongly impact the synapsids and the other reptiles that were living at that time. And many of those groups became extinct or reduced a lot in their abundance and their importance. And these extinctions seem to be linked to a major event in Earth history, which was the opening of the North Atlantic Ocean. So we'd already mentioned that at the beginning of the Triassic, all of the continents are linked. During the Triassic, a huge amount of tectonic activity starts, which starts to push North America and Africa and Europe apart from mm. each other, opening up a kind of, if you like, proto North Atlantic Ocean. And that opening up is associated with vast outpourings of lava. We're not talking about giant volcanoes spewing forth explosive eruptions, but a constant process of lava welling up from the, uh, the fissure between those uh, continental areas and gradually welling up to push them apart. And this huge amount of volcanism has a technical name. It's called uh, the Central Atlantic Magmatic Province. And it's associated with this long-term uh, ocean-forming event. And obviously, with that much new material welling up from inside the Earth, we get huge amounts of gas and all sorts of changes to the climate that accompany that. Uh, the climate becomes wetter than it, than it was previously. It starts to become a bit more seasonal because the opening Atlantic Ocean bring, starts to bring ocean water closer to the shorelines rather than it all being one large homogenous lump of land. And as a result, we get a lot of climatic change around this time too. And it's been speculated that these climate changes may have in some ways impacted badly on those other dominant animals, but allowed the dinosaurs then to take over. So that's one of the big changes we see. And concurrent with that, as we see these other reptile and synapsic groups disappear, we start to see dinosaurs experimenting ever evolutionary in various ways. So we start to see them increasing in size. We start to see them increasing in absolute numbers and living in herds and experimenting with sociality. We start to see them uh, broadening their distribution all over the earth. So uh, dinosaurs very quickly gain a global distribution. Mm. So this does seem to have been a really key event in their history that sets them up from being ecological oddities, which is what they were to start with, through to becoming the most important land-living vertebrates of their time for the next 150 billion years. I see. So Triassic to Jurassic, you start to get the continents pulling apart. This leads to various changes, geologic changes, um, climate changes. And even though we don't know and may never know the exact details, this is the time when the true dinosaurs start becoming more common, becoming more diverse. One thing that's really, one thing that's obvious is, okay, when dinosaurs become more common, you're going to start to see more bones in the fossil record. When they start to become bigger, that's also easy to see because the bones are bigger. But you also said they're experimenting with th things like sociality and, and group behavior. How do you actually discern something behavioral like that from the fossil record? There are a couple of ways we can do that. 
So one way is just by looking at the bones themselves. Sometimes we're lucky enough to find a group of dinosaurs preserved together that were clearly um, preserved in a single geological event, uh, a flood or uh, a, a, an ashfall. Those kinds of events can literally record an instant in time hmm. where the animals that were living together died at the same time and were entombed at the same time. And we call that phenomenon a bone bed where we have many individuals, often of the same species, captured together in one go. And when we get those groups, we can be fairly sure that those animals had come together or were living together at the time of their death. The other line of evidence we have for that actually comes from fossil footprints. Mm. Uh, because again, fossil footprints generally record a very small in time. Uh, most of them are found along riverbanks, what were riverbanks, or along coastlines. And in particular, those ones that are found along coastlines are forming in between the tides. So there's a limited time of a few hours where animals are moving backwards and forwards along the coastline before their footprints are being buried by the sand that's being then laid down over them again by the incoming tide. So we can see when we see lots of, for example, lots of parallel dinosaur tracks that aren't necessarily cross-cutting each other or overprinting each other, but they're walking in parallel for long distances, that seems to suggest that you have a group of these things moving side by side, and we know that that was happening within the space of a few hours at one particular time that many millions of years ago. So those are two direct lines of evidence for groups of dinosaurs being in the same place at the same time, which then allow us to infer they might have been social. So going from Triassic to Jurassic, you've now got more dinosaurs, you've got bigger dinosaurs, you've got more diversity um, among them. At the beginning of the Jurassic, do we have yet any or very many of the dinosaurs that are the classic examples that people will be most familiar with in popular culture? Um, and, and whether or not that's true, what is, that, uh, what is the change you start to see in the Jurassic period look like? So I think most of the dinosaurs that are alive in the Triassic and into the early part of the Jurassic period are fairly unfamiliar dinosaurs to people. They're not the ones that we normally think of uh, in terms of either the kind of popular depictions of dinosaurs or even that often actually in museum collections, uh, mm. except in a few those parts of the world where those dinosaurs are particularly well known from. So, for example, many of the major uh, museums in Europe and North America that I visited have relatively few of those types of dinosaurs on display. Most of the displays concentrate on the larger and more spectacular things from later on in time. So, unfortunately, though, some of those animals are really interesting in their own right and also important because they show how the different major families of dinosaurs start to differ from each other and travel down their own evolutionary pathways. Uh, they probably have a bit more, uh, a bit less impact on the kind of public imagination of what a dinosaur looks like. But that does change through the Jurassic period. So as we go through the Jurassic, we see a number of more changes in the kind of physical environment of the Earth. The, those continents continue to separate from each other and eventually split into a, a great northern landmass called Laurasia and a great southern landmass called Gondwana, which is separated by a shallow ocean, separating them. So the trajectories of evolution of the animals living in the north and south differ a little bit from that time onwards because they can't mix as much as they did when we had just a single landmass that they could move around more easily. Uh, and also the climate starts to become actually nicer. Uh, it still remains very warm, but it becomes wetter. 
And that's because of the influence of these new oceans now allowing more moist air to get towards the centres of these continents than was previously possible. So the landscapes become wetter, they become lusher, and as a result, the world becomes a little bit easier uh, for animals to live in, in particular large animals, because mm. suddenly there's now a lot more plant life and a lot more variety of vegetation around. And the trends we see in dinosaurs at this time are continuing trends in some groups to large size, culminating in some of the first really gigantic dinosaurs ever to live on the earth, things that are getting like Diplodocus, uh, which is getting up to like 30 meters long. Uh, animals like Brachiosaurus, which are weighing up to 50 tons. So these are really big. And now also we're starting to find those dinosaurs that are more familiar to people as well. Um, so these, this is the age, the first age, if you like, of the true dinosaur giants. And alongside that, we also see a number of other trends. They start to experiment with uh, different ways of feeding different diets. Uh, they are still experimenting with body size because not only are some dinosaurs getting larger, some are also starting the opposite trend of getting smaller, which mm. becomes important for other reasons uh, later on. Um, so there's still quite a lot of experimentation at this time. But during the Jurassic, we see most of the big subdivisions of the dinosaurs take place early in the Jurassic periods, establishing those different major groups. And then subsequent to that, each of those major groups takes their own pathway and develops their own specializations in different ways. So it's a great time of experimentation followed by consolidation of mm -hmm. those different ways of life. Mm -hmm. In the Jurassic era, how long ago was that? So the Jurassic period starts about uh, 200 million years ago and extends through to 145 million years ago. I see. So you're talking tens of millions of years just for this era. And this is the period where many of many of the most famous dinosaur examples were actually around. Exactly right. And in particular, the later part of the Jurassic, so about 140 million years ago, no, sorry, 150 million years ago, is when we have some of those really classic uh, dinosaurs that are particularly you know, well known from North America. So things like Diplodocus, things like uh, Stegosaurus. Uh, big carnivores like Allosaurus, these animals all lived alongside each other in what's now Western North America between about 155, 150 million years ago. And I know there's probably not one answer to this question, but roughly, roughly speaking, from, from this era, say, how many species do we know about today approximately? And what do we think that's 1% of what there was, 50% of what there was? Do we have any sense of that at all? That's a really good question. Uh, I can't pull the answer to that off the top of my head, actually. Uh, Triassic dinosaurs are relatively rare, so there are relatively few of them in comparison with the later periods. The richest time for dinosaurs is the Cretaceous. That's the time when we know mm -hmm. most dinosaurs from. And the kind of Ju Jurassic is also fairly well known, certainly much better known than Triassic, but I don't know more numbers off the top of my head. But it's certainly the case that... Um, we know a lot more, or we have a lot more different types of dinosaurs then. But this comes back to one of your earlier questions to do with bias. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons for that pattern might simply be that uh, younger rocks are easier for us to see. They're often the ones on top of the older rocks, so there are often more of them at the surface. Um, there are 
have been fewer opportunities for those rocks to have been eroded away or destroyed through time. Whereas if we go back in time, those rocks can be buried deeper or they could have been eroded away because we're talking about really long periods of time. So our knowledge of the past gets patchier the further back we go. So the fact that we know more about Cretaceous dinosaurs than the Triassic dinosaurs might represent a genuine evolutionary signal. It might mean there are lots and lots more dinosaurs in the Cretaceous, or it might simply be we've had a lot more opportunity to find those dinosaurs in the first place. And that's actually an active question within the subject on finding out the balance between those two factors to work out what the trajectory of uh, the richness of dinosaurs was through time. Was it a line that went up slowly? Was it a line that went up very quickly? Did you plateau and then stop? Did it peak and trough for different reasons? And we're trying to find ways to disentangle the biases that we have from the geological record with the biases there might be from uh, the action of discovery, because obviously we're led by where paleontologists can go to find fossils, and also the real biological processes that might have created little wiggles in how many dinosaurs there were at any one particular time. And this is something that we're putting a lot of effort into trying to understand at the moment, and we don't yet have a really good answer. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that you said earlier was that your personal specialty was in non-avian dinosaurs. So I interpret that to mean this is this is the branch that did not give rise to what we recognize as birds today. When did that split start to happen and what are some of the essential differences between those two branches? So birds actually the way we think about uh, classification is almost like a, a nested set of Russian dolls. So we think about uh, groups within groups within groups within groups. So dinosaurs have a single common ancestor. That single common ancestor led to all the different types of dinosaurs we're aware of, including birds. So it's not that birds are descended from dinosaurs. Birds are dinosaurs. They're mm -hmm. part of that group. They have the same ancestor as all of the other dinosaurs. So we tend to think of them, historically, we've tended to think of them as quite separate. But over the last 20 to 30 years, we've been trying to bring them more thoroughly back in because understanding bird biology is an integral part of understanding the biology of dinosaurs as a whole, because they're just part of what dinosaurs did. So, but the first birds are uh, that we see as distinct other non-bird dinosaurs, we think occurred in the Jurassic period again, while we're mm -hmm. still in the Jurassic again, about 145 million years ago. And there's a little bit of argument over which is the earliest true bird. And this comes down to a lot of rather esoteric arguments over definition, what actually defines a bird. In the old days, it was easy. When I was a student, it was really easy. Birds had feathers. It was <laughs> as simple as that. Birds had feathers and they flew. It was a clear difference. And there are a few other features like that. These days, because lots of dinosaurs are now known to have feathers that were not birds, and a lot of the features that we used to think of as unique to birds seem to have their origins deep in the dinosaur tree. It's become increasingly difficult to come up with a clean definition of where we draw a line between a bird and a dinosaur, which is one of the other reasons we now tend to bring them into the dinosaur fold, because there is very much a blurred transition between those two. Um, almost every feature we see in a bird, we can trace its origin back well before the origin of birds to some other dinosaur group now. Hmm. So uh, for me, a good colloquial, uh, if you like, uh, an easy rule of thumb is birds flew, dinosaurs didn't. Uh, it seems that birds finally got all of the bits of kit necessary to be able to be active flyers. Uh, 
Whereas dinosaurs didn't, they might have had feathers and they might have had many of these other features, but they didn't have that final bit in the toolbox that enabled them to be active flyers. So for me, that's where the kind of definition comes. And the earliest bird that I think many paleontologists would recognize is an animal called Archaeopteryx, mm. which is from about 145 million years ago. It lived in what's now Germany. Um, and it's known from several fossil specimens now, which are all coated in feathers. And that is definitely, if not the earliest birds, it's very close to being the earliest birds. Mm -hmm. And what does fossil evidence for feathers actually look like? Is it is it mostly like an imprinting of the feathers in the surrounding rock? Or do you actually get any, any uh, more concrete indication of the feather material itself? Well, in the case of Archaeopteryx, which is the earliest known example of a feather from the fossil record, they're imprints, they're impressions around the skeleton that are in preserved in a beautiful, very fine-grained limestone that captures very uh, high levels of anatomical detail. Uh, but in other fossils from slightly later in time, we also see organic impressions of these feathers. So we actually see... Um, and these impressions that are captured by the action of bacteria that are very quickly preserving those features as the animal is fossilized. And so in those, we see a lot more detail. In Archaeopteryx, we're looking at the impressions of those structures in very fine rock. Later on, we're actually seeing the chemical ghosts of those things, uh, which actually give us quite a lot more detail, even to the extent that some of those features also preserve the intracellular structures that were present in those feathers originally. Hmm. And then, um, so, so it sounds like there's a lot, there were a lot of creatures that had feathers. Feathers were, if I'm understanding around before flight was, they were just one piece of the flight puzzle <coughs> that, um, that we associate with, uh, modern day birds. And we learned over time that more and more dinosaurs actually had feathers, I want to talk about this a little bit more. What do we think that means? So what were feathers doing for these creatures before they were a component of flying? And um, I do want to ask about velociraptors. I know this is an example where I think we discovered eventually that they were covered in feathers. So what were these feathers doing for the, the earliest uh, dinosaurs that had them? And then maybe, maybe we'll get into a discussion about the raptors. There's a bit of debate at the moment about where feathers appear in dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. So some of my colleagues think that maybe this is a feature that characterizes all dinosaurs and eventually we'll find evidence that they appeared in every single dinosaur group. Mm -hmm. I belong to a different camp where we think that actually the story of feathers is largely a story to do with the animals that are fairly close to bird origins, the meat-eating dinosaurs. And it does look like a lot of the meat-eating dinosaurs would have had feathers. Um, there's quite good evidence from different groups of dinosaurs, a direct evidence of feathers that they had them. So it looks like they were an important part of meat-eating dinosaur evolutionary history, but we're still waiting to see more evidence that they might have been more generally important to dinosaurs. But they certainly appear in animals that are very distantly related to birds, that kind of great, great, great uncles of birds, as opposed to being very close evolutionary cousins. And they initially appear as hair-like structures. Uh, hmm. sort of filaments um, they're not hair they're chemically different from hair so our hair is made of one form of a protein called keratin feathers are made of a different form of that same protein they have different evolutionary origins so these filament like structures in birds are made of the bird type um, version of that protein and then through time we actually have a, se a whole sequence of fossils that show how you turn that single filament into something that then has little barbs on it 
how they become more complex by adding further and further barbs and turning themselves into kind of aerodynamic surfaces or display objects. So we have very convincing sequences from both the fossils that actually match also developmental biology experiments on how feathers are built uh, to show how those structures came about. And initially, as I mentioned earlier, it was thought that actually feathers and flight were the same thing. They must have appeared for the same reason. But it turns out that feathers are in animals that are clearly not flying, animals whose proportions and size and whose musculature is simply not capable of flight. And there are two or three competing ideas for why feathers might have evolved. And actually, all of those ideas, they're not mutually exclusive. And it mm -hmm. could have been that feathers actually were used for several things at once when they first appeared. So one of those suggestions is that it was for insulation. A lot of dinosaurs were very active animals. It's been suggested they had uh, higher metabolic rates than other reptile groups. And these things might have appeared in the small animals in order to help them re retain that heat so they could be more active. Related to that, it's also been suggested that maybe they were useful for helping to brood the eggs because mm. dinosaurs all laid eggs and the small dinosaurs at least probably sat on their eggs. And it may have been a feature that allowed some of those dinosaurs to um, assist with keeping the eggs at a certain temperature. And the final idea, which is actually my favorite idea, um, is that they were for display. And that these mm. things originally evolved basically as a way of showing off. And um, one of the reasons for thinking that might have some uh idea to it is that a lot of the earliest feather-like structures appear on things like um, the arms, and they also appear on the tip of the tail in fan-like arrangements. I see. These look like classic places that you would want something for display by sort of showing your arms. Yeah, uh, literally a, like a peacock. Exactly. So yeah. like a, things that you could show off at a potential mate or a potential rival for some form of display. And we also know that some of these very early dinosaurs where the feathers were not particularly um, spectacular, they were these kinds of coatings of fuzz. But we know from some spectacularly preserved fossils in China that even in those relatively fuzzy, unshowy looking uh, coatings of feathers, that they were colored and that they had color banding. Uh, and I, I actually had this um, in my questions here. How on earth... <laughs> Do you discern something like color? It's 10 years ago when I used to give talks on dinosaurs, I just used to stand in front of audiences and say, we will never know what color a dinosaur was. Uh, you never get preservation of the original pigments in, in, in a dinosaur. Uh, it's something that uh, paleo artists uh, are allowed to exercise their imagination over because we'll never know. Uh, it's probably something like birds, probably something like lizards, we kind of use our own imagination to fill in the gaps. And then about 10 or 15 years ago, uh, technical advancements in geochemistry and in microscopy started to reveal clues to dinosaur color. And some of these spectacularly preserved, in particular Chinese dinosaur fossils, ones that were already famous for having feathers, it turned out their preservation was good enough that when you looked at them chemically, you could find antibodies to the different different proteins in and to prove that these things were made of the same protein that bird feathers were on. Then going further, they were able to use microscopy, microscopy, it's a word I can never say, microscopy methods to look at structures within the feathers that give an idea of their coloration. These are things called melanosomes, which are organelles within cells that include pigments. And they have in living animals, melanosomes have characteristic shapes depending on the pigment 
and tail oh, yeah. in them. So by looking at the shape of these little objects within the feathers, you could actually come up with a suggestion that maybe this feather maybe was black or this feather maybe was dark brown. I see. So, so if I'm following this, <clears throat> the basic picture I have in my mind is certain places with certain geological uh, properties, certain physical properties of the sediment, perhaps the sediment is extremely, extremely fine. And so it gives you a lot more uh, structural detail. You can not only see the macroscopic qualities of the organism that's preserved, but you can literally point a microscope at it and see um, cellular level features. And, and what you're saying is it just happens to be that some of these pigment containing cellular organelles have different shapes depending on the color. And so if you can see the shape of this thing, you can infer what pigment color must have been there. That's an excellent summary. And that's exactly what some of my colleagues have done with these dinosaur fossils. Uh, about five or six dinosaurs have now been subjected to this type of analysis. And They've all come up, they've all been found to have a range of colors ranging between blacks and grays and dark browns, because those are the types of colors that this pigment melanin contained within those melanosomes generally give. Mm -hmm. There's also a few examples of things like russets and reds, again, also uh, colors that are given by melanins. <laughs> There's also the possibility one day. And I think this is, a, again, an emerging and fairly fast-moving field that we'll also be able to look at structural colours. That is the colours that happen not because of a pigment, but because of the physical structure of an object. So if you think about a lot of the iridescence that we see in birds. And like a hummingbird and or something. Exactly. That's caused not necessarily by pigment, but actually by the interplay of the structure of the feather with light and how the light is refracted and diffracted through those structures. Hmm. And we should be able to see some of those details if they're present in some of these really exceptional fossils too. And colleagues of mine working on other types of fossils have found evidence for that in things like fossil beetles and fossil insects. Hmm. But we're still waiting for an example of iridescence from a dinosaur, but I'm sure it won't actually be too long. I, I think we'll get that within the next few years. Interesting. You did say something about antibodies that had to do with this. Are you saying like the the antibody itself is somehow preserved, or you can you can see uh, an echo of it in in the shape of something. Uh, no, it's not so much. It's using antibody primers. So we use an antibody for the protein that we would say is present in, say, a living bird, and those uh, bind chemically to the uh, to these fossils. So, so the an the antibodies against the proteins that work biologically today, that stick to something today in a living organism, still stick to the fossil of that ancient protein today in some cases? Absolutely. So some of my colleagues have suggested that you still got traces of that original chemistry there. Um, I mean, there have been claims of uh, lots of uh, preservation of different proteins, and there's fairly good evidence of the preservation of things like collagen um, in dinosaur fossils. And there have been claims of other types of protein too, uh, including hemoglobin, although those claims have been more contested. And obviously that brings us onto the subject of DNA. Mm -hmm. And there have been claims of dinosaur DNA, but they remain very, very contentious. The early claims uh, were generally disproved quite quickly. They turned out to be human contamination. Mm -hmm. uh, they were largely, when 
the samples were re-looked at, most of the DNA in those cases turned out to be human gut bacteria, which are mm. everywhere. And so mm. they were just cases of contamination. There have been more recent claims from labs using stricter protocols that they're finding kind of nucleotide-like material. But again, these results have not yet really been replicated. Uh, and so it's still an open question, although many of my colleagues who work on ancient DNA think that it's probably unlikely given how quickly DNA breaks down mm -hmm. in the environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my gut instinct there would be, um, you know, if you find some remnant of nucleotides, um, maybe you will, but it's not going to be preserved in the sequence, you know, in the intact form it would have been for the organism. Although, I mean, I'm, I'm really just speculating. Um, I, I, you know, I vaguely remember, so this is related to the general topic of, you know, just finding any sort of soft as opposed to, to hard material that might be preserved over these long periods. And also just general questions I have about um, physiology. Obviously, the, the morphology side is perfectly intuitive because, you know, you can just see what the bones look like and everything. But more generally, how does one make inferences about dinosaur physiology? So this comes down to a, a number of different proxies. So uh, one of the uh, most commonly used ones comes down to looking at dinosaur growth rates um, and then generally making the assumption that if an animal grows quickly, it was probably able to fuel its body and was living actively and possibly with a high metabolic rate. So this is probably the, the method that's used most often. And we can get an idea of growth rates in a relatively simple way. Uh, and that is by cutting open a dinosaur bone and bone forms cyclically in response to environmental changes. So during a good season, the bone grows quickly. During a poison, it grows slowly. And those alternating patterns of growth, which are normally annual, lay down rings, rings of fast growth versus uh, narrow rings of slow growth and so on in this cyclical pattern. So when we cut open that dinosaur bone, it's simply a case of counting the rings to work out how old the animal was at the time it died. And then we can use uh, various other things like the um, circumference of the animal's leg bones to get an idea of how much it weighed, because mm -hmm. that's a physical feature related to its body mass, uh, which we see in living animals too. And by combining those two things, we can then get a rate of growth. And it turns out that dinosaurs grew much faster than any other reptile that we know about, much, mm. much faster. Some of them growing at rates that are definitely comparable with those of living mammals. And none of them grow as fast. Birds grow faster than almost anything, but then again, birds are living dinosaurs, so perhaps they're not comparing like they like. Uh, but uh, certainly they grew very fast, much faster than a crocodile or a turtle or a lizard or anything like that. And so if you find even an isolated bit of a tall bone that shows those growth rings, uh, even if you only have a chip of that bone that you don't know if it's from a dinosaur or not, if it's of that age and it was growing that quickly, you've probably got a bit of dinosaur in mm -hmm. your hand. Interesting. So that, so you can you can infer how fast they were growing by looking at the bones. It's not unlike a tree ring or something. And this tells you something about their metabolism. And for me, naturally, this brings up the question of something like warm-blooded versus cold-bloodedness. And you know, I remember vaguely hearing at some point that maybe some or even many dinosaurs were warm-blooded. And I'm wondering if if the answer to that question is is right at, at about this spot. Yeah, I think um Going back historically, dinosaurs were just viewed as scaled up lizards. Mm -hmm. So it was assumed that for most of the history of dinosaur studies through the 1970s, that these were largely a kind of large, sluggish, basically scaled up iguanas. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but a large number of studies since then have tended to overturn that rule. And most people would now regard dinosaurs as having an elevated metabolic rate in comparison with reptiles. Although there is still a debate over how elevated that rate would be and how they achieved those higher body temperatures and higher metabolisms. So, for example, the really gigantic dinosaurs probably didn't have mammal-style um, warm-bloodedness because they would probably end up overheating if they did. These are huge animals that would be con- making a huge amount of internal heat that they would have to dump somehow mm. in order to um, uh, avoid over heat uh, and also it would require vast amounts of fuel to keep those kinds of um, bodies going but equally if you're very large you can keep heat internally um, very relatively easy so as you digest food you produce heat as you move around your muscles produce heat as a waste product and all of those things added together produce something that's been called by some people inertial homeothermy. And that Mm. is basically maintaining a constant high body temperature simply by the fact that you lose your internally generated heat quite slowly. Even if your metabolic furnace is set, the thermostat's not particularly high because you're making all this other heat simply by moving around and digesting things. Mm -hmm. And that heat is difficult to get rid of. Maybe you end up with a higher constant temperature. But for smaller dinosaurs, there's a slightly more of a consensus that those animals may have actually flicked the switch Mm -hmm. and genuinely have been generating heat internally and not just relying on external sources of heat or sources of heat generated through bodily processes. So it seems more likely that these small animals that are very lightly built, they look like they're built for an active life. Some of them have quite large brains and large brains also demand quite a lot of a fuel to keep them running um so dinosaurs might have actually occupied a spectrum of body temperatures and ways of maintaining those body temperatures which might not be too surprising i mean we think of mammals as warm-blooded but some um mammals run on a very low thermostat things like sloths Mm -hmm. um almost picking up, uh, almost doing nothing in terms of their metabolic rate. They're um, relying a lot on external heat. They're not particularly active. Um, Whereas other animals that we think of, like mice, obviously are running on a very high um, thermostat, running around constantly using up energy. So it might not be that surprising that when you have a range of animals that range in size and range in behavior, that maybe they have some different strategies. The one thing I think we all agree on is that dinosaurs are all running warmer on average, and probably keeping those temperatures constant, uh, unlike things like crocodiles and turtles and lizards today. Mm-hmm. So, so as a general rule, uh, metabolic growth rates were higher for dinosaurs than living uh, reptiles. So somehow, somehow their metabolism and their physiology had to support that. Um, you also mentioned something that I wanted to get to, which is many of them had large brains. And you know, it's very interesting to think about things like what the cognition of some of these animals would have looked like, if only because they were around for you know more than enough time to evolve sophisticated um, cognition potentially. I suppose the the reality that you're anchored to here is in looking at things like uh, skull volume and uh, brain uh, skull to, to body size ratios and things like that. What were some of the, the more impressive dinosaurs looking like in, in those terms? That's exactly right. So we're reliant entirely on those kinds of uh, measures when we're coming up with our um, ideas about how smart a dinosaur might be. So a lot of dinosaurs, frankly, are not very smart. They have brains that are about the right size, 
for their body size and they're not that much different from the kinds of relationship we'd see in a living reptile like a mm -hmm. crocodile or a turtle but there are a small number of dinosaurs that are on their way to being birds that do substantially increase their brain size and in particular there's a, a few group uh, a few things that are very close to bird origins animals called uh, paravians uh, that include for example things like truodon and to some extent things like velociraptor where their brains are larger than we would expect for their body size, which suggests that these are animals that might be uh, doing something different cognitively to the other bigger animals that are largely just using those brains to find other dinosaurs, avoid being eaten and making other little dinosaurs. Um, so these are animals that potentially might have been capable of slightly more cases behaviors, for example. I see. So they, they deviate somewhat um, in their in their brain to body ratio from other dinosaurs, but there's there's not some species that's like off the charts. No, we're not looking at any that are particular. We don't have dinosaurs, uh, extinct dinosaurs that we think of as things like dolphins. But mm. of course, when we bring birds into the mix, we do start to get contenders for really smart um, animals that are convergently achieving, in some cases, mammal-like levels of cognition and ability in terms of things like tool use and memory. So things like corvids, for example, crows, mm -hmm. are, are well-documented tool users. They, they are also proven to have good spatial memory and problem-solving abilities. Parrots also known to exhibit some of those tendencies. So dinosaurs did get there. Uh, it's just that it had to wait until birds for really for that intelligence, uh, if you like, to really take off. Um, Pardon pun, because obviously they're flying as well. Um, but uh, it is interesting that um, we do get that convergent evolution of those enhanced cognitive abilities in those two great groups, mammals and dinosaurs. Um, and they often end up being used for the same thing in tool use and social communication and all these kinds of things. So but uh, when you're, if you're looking at a crow, you're looking at probably the smartest dinosaur that ever lived. <laughs> Um, so you did mention their velociraptors and some of those, um, related species. Now, as I'm, as I'm sure you, you have seen the popular depiction of the velociraptor in the movies was, uh, a, it was a predator obviously, but B it was highly intelligent and C it was social. So they hunted in packs. The last question is probably answerable in principle, right? Were there any velociraptors or predatory dinosaurs that were social and, and potentially pack hunters like that? It's been suggested they were. The evidence is a little bit equivocal. Um, so part of the evidence comes from finding groups of these things fossilized together. So there are a couple of examples of meat-eating dinosaurs found in small groups that are interpreted as packs that were wiped out in a single event. So that's one line of evidence. Another line of evidence comes from looking in the opposite direction at kills. So at herbivore skeletons that have uh, evidence that they have been predated by more than one individual because say there are teeth of different sizes mm. left at the kill site so that's the flip version of that and the and the third part of that argument would be footprints because there are again some examples of footprints of meat-eating dinosaurs apparently walking in the same place together at the same time and the final part of that would be again this idea about increased cognition that you might expect in an animal that's having to coordinate activity as a group um, and that goes along with things like these small meat-eating dinosaurs having uh, bigger brains than we might expect for animals of their size. Interesting. Um, and I suppose this is a, 
uh, as good a spot as any, I have to ask about T-Rex. So what would you say, if you had to summarize T-Rex for us, when was that creature around and what, um, how does what we actually know compare to what some of the popular depictions have been? <laughs> okay. Uh, so T-Rex was actually around a relatively short time. It's one of the mm. last dinosaurs uh, to evolve before the massive meteorite impact came along and wiped them all out. So it's on Earth for about 2 million years. It lived exclusively in what's now Western North America. So it's known best from places like Wyoming, Montana, uh, slightly in Southern Canada and down uh, a little bit further down the Rockies, but that kind of central Rocky Mountain region is where most of its fossils come from. It's still one of the largest land-based predators that we've ever found of all time. The only other contenders are other meat-eating dinosaurs. And there's a little bit of argument over which was the heaviest and which was the longest. Uh, but T-Rex, of the ones we know about, T-Rex is by far the best understood because it's known on the basis of about 35 or 40 skeletons in museum collections around the world. So we know a lot about the anatomy of T-Rex, um, what it was doing. And because it's such a popular dinosaur, not only with the public, but also with a lot of paleontologists, it has been worked on a lot. So every new technique that ever comes along that needs to be applied, it very frequently ends up being applied to T-Rex first, partly because people like it, and partly because there are lots of specimens of T-Rex that you can get uh, a decent sample. Uh, to actually try these ideas out. So it's definitely an impressive animal up to uh, 12 and a half meters long, about six and a half tons in weight, the top predator of its time. Um, and in general, probably one of the most iconic dinosaurs in terms of its public impact too. What, um, what do we know about, you know, what was that? Was that a social pack hunter? Were they solitary? And then, of course, I want to ask about the famous uh, tiny arms and, sure. <laughs> and what we know about those. So T-Rex, we don't know too much about its actual social behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, most T-Rex skeletons are found on their own. Uh, so it's been suggested that because of that observation, that they may be mainly solitary animals. Uh, we and we also know very little about T-Rex growth. Actually, there are a couple of juvenile T-Rex skeletons. We don't have any babies. We don't have any eggs, uh, which is slightly unusual given that we know so much else about the adults of these animals. Uh, we also know, for example, it grew very rapidly. We all dinosaurs grew fast. T-Rex had this amazing teenage growth spurt where it put on most of its weight in a very short period of time. So it's um, probably a loner, as far as we know at the moment. There's a little bit of debate at the moment whether T-Rex was feathered, mm. um, because earlier ancestors of T-Rex did have feathers uh, on the basis of known fossils of those animals from China with feathers on them. But the few bits of fossil skin we have from T-Rex are all scaly. So it's not clear if uh, T-Rex had like a patchwork of feathers on some parts of its body and scales on others, which is entirely possible. Or if, for example, maybe T-Rex lost its feathers, mm -hmm. which is also possible because it was a very large animal and it might have lost them in the same way that elephants have lost hair to, uh, to avoid overheating. Um, so 
even that fundamental aspect of T-Rex is actually something we, we're not quite sure about at the moment, despite the fact it's been so extensively studied. And similarly, that brings us on to the arms. I mean, those silly arms. I mean, these are things that are, this is an animal that's 12 and a half meters long. It has an arm the same size as mine. And it's reduced its hand down very famously from the three fingers that we normally see in a meat-eating dinosaur, just down to two. Um, but that, although it's very small, that arm is also very heavily muscled. It still has a lot of the big crests and processes on the bone for attaching large chest muscles to. So we really have no idea. The hands, are, the arms aren't long enough for the arms to reach the hands. Mm-hmm. When the animal is walking along, its head is a long way in front of where its arms are. So it's not using them to reach out and grab things. It's primarily using its head to grab things in much the same way that a big predatory bird would these days. So the only remaining suggestion why people have suggested that it has these teeth in the arms is that they basically evolved to not use the arms so much for prey capture. Maybe as a result, during evolution, because those features haven't been used very much, they've basically reduced in size, but they've kept some function. And the one function that everyone thinks it might be for is obviously the rudest function, which is it's something to do with sex. Mm. And it might be basically so that uh, male T-Rexes or female T-Rexes can get a good hold of the other partner during sex. And that's about the only expert sort of functional explanation for those things that isn't, we can't reject Almost everything else that people have come up with, there's a good reason why it probably wouldn't have worked. And this is about the one thing that still keeps coming back as being a possibility for why it kept those arms. So the other, I mean, the other possibility is actually that if T-Rex had been allowed to evolve for another 2 million years, it may away. have lost the owners, yeah. um, which we'll never know, unfortunately. So the big topic um, that I think we're about to come to is, okay, we, we've kind of, we've kind of done a little tour of the Triassic into the Jurassic and into the Cretaceous. You've mentioned that the Cretaceous has the highest, um, the most impressive probably volume and diversity of dinosaurs, potentially because the fossil record is, is biased in certain ways. And that's the earlier time that we, that's easier to see potentially also that it actually was the, the most voluminous period of, of dinosaur existence. But then, of course, we're going to get to the famous Cretaceous extinction. So, rough, all I know is probably what, you know, close to what the average person knows, which is they obviously went extinct. There's the famous meteor that crashed into what is now present day Mexico. Can you give us a, a sort of updated version of what paleontologists think about? in terms of that mass extinction event? Was it largely due to that meteor? Were there other factors? Was it relatively sudden or more gradual than we might think? What did that look like? So the topic of dinosaur extinction has all been really uh, debated over the years. And there used to be strong camps talking about how quick it was, how slow it was. And something like 80 to 100 different theories have been proposed for why. Uh, And most of those theories are very dinosaur specific. But of course, what we're looking at is it's not only dinosaurs that went extinct at this time, but many other groups of animals and plants disappeared as well. Mm. Um, so any mechanism that we come up with has to account for the mass dying off of all those other animals in land and sea, not just dinosaurs. So that helps narrow the field. And there have been two or three serious contenders for what caused this mass extinction over the years. Uh, up until about 30 years ago, 40 years ago, they mainly came down to thinking about gradual climate change because the dance of the continents is still continuing on the Earth's surface, global climates are still cooling, vegetation is changing, and it was thought that those environmental and geographic changes might have been driving a long, slow-burning extinction. Uh, 
Another idea that came to prominence was in central India, we see evidence for two or three million years worth of extensive volcanism of lavas pouring out, forming what's called the Dakan Plateau in central India, uh, putting down several kilometers thickness of rock over that period of time, associated with outgassing of lots of sulfur dioxide and carbon dioxide, which would have had an influence on global climate. These uh, eruptions are happening at the very end of the Cretaceous, and the timing of that was suggestive to some people too. That in the 1980s, we have the impact hypothesis coming out, where it's realized that there is this thin layer of rock in various parts of the world at the very end of the Cretaceous period that is enriched with a rare element called iridium that is very rich in meteorites and very rare on Earth. And that idea is proposed. Paleontologists initially don't like it very much. And they say, well, we don't, we don't really like astronomers coming and telling us what to do. Mm-hmm. And not only that, um, where's the crater? And then... Ten years after that, the crater is discovered, buried off the sea in in the Gulf of Mexico, um, and actually had been found many years previously by geophysicists looking for oil, but hadn't realised that it was the age that it was. And then workers gradually fine-tuned our knowledge of the age of that structure, and it definitely coincides with that last day of the Cretaceous. Um, so if you like, um, it's that hole in the ground is marking the end of the age of dinosaurs and the beginning mm. of the age of mammals. What do we call that? What, what's that crater called? It's called uh, the Chicxulub crater, which is named after the village uh, in Mexico, which is closest to the center of the impact site. So if you've ever been lucky enough to be on holiday in Mexico, and if you've swum in a cenote, you have swum in a piece of, in, in, in a fracture that's there because of that crater. Hmm. Uh, that crater-like structure that is huge it extends over many thousands of square kilometers of the seabed and it makes it up onto the land as well. The rim of that crater is basically a fracture zone of rock. And that fractured zone of rock uh, meant that the overlying rocks that uh, came later became deeply fissured and cracked as a result of that process. So if, you, if you're lucky enough to go and swim in a cenote, uh, or in uh, Mexico, you're swimming in something that's only there because a giant rock from space mm-hmm. created a great big crater a few, uh, hundred kilometers or so away. I see. So it's fair to say that that was a major key event in dinosaur extinction, but there were these sort of other things going on at the same time that were maybe happening at a slower pace that were contributing as well. That's right. And there's been a a very recent work using uh, sophisticated ecological models and also computer models for global temperature and the effect of the impact and also of the volcanic action have now very firmly suggested that the the impact was the key. It was the only thing that was probably capable of creating the climate havoc that took place afterwards. Whereas the volcanic action, bizarrely, might have actually made the global situation slightly better than Mm. if it hadn't have been happening when the impacts happened. It looks like uh, the uh, meteorite impact led to a substantial period of global cooling. And it could be that the volcanism that occurred in India about the time actually helped with a little bit of global warming. And it might have buffered it just a little bit. So the extinction may have been even worse if it wasn't for the fact that there was also this extensive volcanism going on at the same Mm -hmm. time. And it's not clear if that volcanism and the impact are linked. It has been suggested that by whacking a a fast-moving object into the earth, that may have in some way triggered 
this uh, volcanic activity. But that idea is very much unproven mm-hmm. at the moment. They're probably unrelated. So, so this extinction event, is it accurate to say that this extinction event killed all of the non-avian dinosaur lineages off, and the only dinosaurs that survived are the direct... Uh, the modern day birds are the direct descendants of those line- all the dinosaur lineages that actually survived this thing. That's exactly right. So that uh, nothing as far we have never found the fossil of a dinosaur in rocks that are younger than that event. So that's slightly untrue. There are one or two fossils, but these are fossils that are reworked. These are fossils that have been eroded from older deposits and then brought back in as pebbles, essentially. So, but no dinosaur fossil found in the place where it died has ever mm-hmm. been found above that layer. Mm-hmm. Um, and similarly, it wasn't only dinosaurs that went. So uh, some types of bird also died out and never made it past the boundary. Some types of mammal didn't mm-hmm. survive past it. Um, many different types of uh, in marine invertebrate and micro, micro fossil also never made it past that boundary. So altogether, it's something like the estimates are between 60 and 70% of all animal life uh, became extinct in that very short interval. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, so various bird species also went extinct at the time, as you mentioned, um, mammals as well. The image I have of mammals that were around concurrently with dinosaurs, I'm not sure if this is a caricature or not, is that they were mostly um, diminutive creatures, that they were small, nocturnal, rodent-like things that um, you know couldn't compete in various ways with what, what else was, di- uh, what the dinosaurs were dominating the earth. Um, but then it's after this extinction event that you start to get this massive radiation. So what did mammals living at the same time actually look like? Is that an accurate picture that I just painted? And then what does that mammalian radiation look like? And when does it actually start to happen? So you're right. The majority of mammals that are alive while dinosaurs alive are small. The largest mammals that were around were no larger than a, a house cat, uh, maybe getting up to the size of uh, a raccoon or something like that. Um, so they were all small. Most of them would have been superficially very rodent or shrew-like or squirrel-like, but they did have a wide variety of lifestyles. Some of them are scampering along the floor. Some are living in trees. We even have some of these um, uh Jurassic and Cretaceous mammals that have adaptations for swimming and for gliding. Hmm. So there are lots of different uh, lifestyles, but they're all relatively small animals and relatively unobtrusive in terms of if you turned up on in your time machine in the Cretaceous, uh, you wouldn't necessarily be the most obvious animals in the landscape. So they are around, they're quite diverse. Uh, but they're certainly not um, ecologically as important as the dinosaurs that are around at that time. Although there is one, my fossil mammal colleagues do like to point out, there is at least one of those larger early mammals that its fossils were found with the fossils of dinosaur babies in its guts. Mm. Uh, So that they did get one back for the team (laughs) um, where they have uh, one animal that did feast on baby dinosaurs and there are probably others. Um, But what happens when the dinosaurs disappear is we end up with a vast amount of empty ecological space on land uh, for different roles that dinosaurs occupied as top predators and as big herbivores. All of those kind of slots are empty. And in the recovery period, 
we start to see other animal groups starting to take over those roles. And that recovery actually takes some time. It's not instant. It takes a few million years for these different groups to themselves start radiating evolutionarily into different ways of life and things like that. And actually, initially, uh, birds initially did quite well, for example. So this is a period where we see some parts of the world, the top predators were actually large flightless birds, um, almost in a way recapitulating uh, what the meat-eating dinosaurs were doing before the impact hit. So there's just this brief period where we see some of those ecosystems, actually the top predators aren't big, ferocious mammals, but they're rather big, scary-looking birds. Um, but eventually, mammals do come to occupy almost all those niches that dinosaurs occupied. But interestingly, all through the history of uh, the remaining history of life up until now, although mammals became very diverse, they uh, they reinvaded the seas. So we have things like whales, we have bats invading the air, we have primates becoming very smart and eventually leading to humans. Uh, they never approached the same kinds of um, sizes on land that dinosaurs did. So although whales are larger than dinosaurs, things like the blue whale is, as far as we know at the moment, the largest animal that's ever lived. Mm -hmm. uh, but as I'm fond of saying, whales cheat. Uh, whales live in water. They don't need to hold their weight up against gravity. And they basically swim around with their mouths open and eat a very rich food source. Um, whereas gigantic dinosaurs worked for a living because they had to hold their <laughs> bodies up against gravity. And they did that by eating a very poor food resource in order to do that. Um, and when we look at uh, land living mammals, they don't even begin to rival the large just dinosaurs inside large land animal mammals top out about 15 or 20 tons with some of these extinct very large relatives of elephants and rhinos but we haven't found anything bigger than that whereas the largest dinosaurs that we know about are weighing up 60 or 70 tons so at least three or four times more mm -hmm. than the largest mammal ever mm -hmm. and what what are those are those like the brontosaurus type things that's exactly right these are animals that we call technically called sauropods the very large barrel-bodied animals that are four-legged with very long neck, one tail, a very long tail. And the largest representatives in that group are things called titanosaurs, very appropriately. And they get up to, as far as we know, they get up to about 65 to 70 tons in weight. So we're looking at something that's the equivalent of about 10 African male elephants hmm. on the scales. Wow. So the dinosaur extinction is, you know, probably the most famous and dramatic mass extinction, not only because it's the dinosaurs themselves disappearing and they were so impressive as animals, but because you've got this um, relatively, you know, sort of clean story that involves this uh, meteor crashing into the earth. If we think about that mass extinction that actually enabled the dinosaurs to to radiate all over the globe, or we think about other mass extinctions that perhaps you could talk about, do they all tend to have at least one largish precipitating event, or are there some that are um, you know, much more gradual in nature? What, is there any pattern to what mass extinctions look like? Are they all kind of unique events? They're all, they're all kind of unique. So, for example, the one at the end of the Cretaceous is the only one that we are convinced is related to an extraterrestrial impact. Mm -hmm. So some of the others, there have been uh, suggestions that there might be evidence for a meteorite hitting. 
but only convincing one for that uh, gigantic rock from space explanation so far is the one at the end of the Cretaceous period. The one defining one of the defining features of mass extinctions is that they're relatively rapid geologically. That's how we recognize them. There are mm-hmm. times of great dying in a relatively short period. So they're all usually quite quick, but they do seem to have different mechanisms. So for example, um, we have the meteorite impact for the end of Cretaceous, but the, the largest mass extinction of all time, which happens prior to the origin of dinosaurs, occurs at the end of the Permian period, which is the one immediately before the Triassic, uh, about 250 million years ago. And this is was a devastating extinction, which wiped out almost all life, like 97% of all marine species are thought to have died uh, during this relatively uh, short interval. And that extinction seems to have been caused by massive volcanic activity in what's now Siberia. Mm. There are these huge areas in Siberia known as Siberian traps, which represent millions of cubic meters of um, of lava that was spewed out over a relatively small uh, period in a long area. And it's thought that the climatic and chemical changes that they caused to the biosphere basically destroyed ecosystems. Um, And then we have a long period of recovery from those changes there. So actually volcanism has been implicated in at least two of the big three extinctions. Mm -hmm. Uh, Once at the end of the Permian, the really big one, and then once at the end of the Triassic period, when dinosaurs kind of um, managed to take over. And so those two uh, extinctions seem to be very closely related to volcanism. The one that wiped out the dinosaurs is something to do with uh, a giant rock from space. And then there are extinctions again which are either linked with climate or whose causes aren't yet quite yet known mm-hmm. there's still argument over what the actual physical cause was and um so on the topic of volcanism how are, are we living right now through a very quiet period of geological time in terms of volcano activity the time that humans have been evolving inside of or or not uh, it's at the moment we're living through a, a relatively um, quiet period in terms of what's going on. So these major volcanic events that cause these extinctions are caused by what are called flood basalts. So these are when there is a large amount of tectonic activity and active movement of plates away from each other and upwelling of huge amounts of lava from the interior of the earth to create basically new land or new areas. Um, And these are things that are driven potentially by cycles within the interior of the Earth. Uh, Again, this is a debated area, and I'm not a geophysicist, so I'm not going to try and explain the reasoning behind them. But it is suggested that there are cycles of assembly and reassembly of the continents that are going on over very long extended time periods. And these are in some way linked to these pulses of volcanic activity. There are also relatively lots of random events where we just get blobs of superheated lava coming up from closer to the Earth's core. It's what's called a hotspot that can uh, get to the Earth's surface and be a focus for um, an an intense or ongoing period of volcanism. So, for example, on a much smaller scale, the Hawaiian Islands are caused by the Pacific plate moving over a hot piece of mantle underneath Mm -hmm. it. And as that plate moves over, that hot piece of mantle occasionally punches through and makes a volcano and makes an island. And as that plate keeps moving over it, and the and the islands move away from 
the hot those volcanoes become less active and eventually switch off. So the Hawaiian Islands formed in that way. The Galapagos Islands formed in a similar way, and um, that's a relatively small scale one of those events. Large scale events are things that might have led, for example, to the opening of the Atlantic and the South Atlantic and other really big ocean basins. Mm -hmm. So. Um, the, uh, but at the moment, I think we're lucky in that we're living. We're not living in one of those times, because um, and uh, otherwise, um, we're in even worse climatic trouble than we are already. Mm -hmm. So, you, you may have touched on this a little already, but when we talk about the dinosaur extinction from the meteor impact at the end of the Cretaceous. We talk about that being a sudden event, but of course we're talking about geological time. Can you remind me, like, what is that window of extinction? Is it is it literally like, you know, within a few years it disappeared, all those non-avian dinosaurs, or is it like a two million year window or something like that? Uh, we're talking about something within geological time. So we're talking about something that's happening, depending on the animals or plants concerned, things are disappearing over the scale of months to decades. Okay. So this is a, a very, very short period of uh, Earth history. We're not talking about things hanging on for a few million years. We're talking about things within real ecological time being wiped out. And that's because we think a lot of the mechanisms involved in killing these animals are things like starvation, mm -hmm. um, which are literally wiping out populations very, very quickly. Um, so it's notable that a lot of the survivors of that event are animals uh, or plants that are either generalists uh, so they're able to switch their diets, they're able to switch their habitats, they're able to move away from areas that are bad, all the specialists go, or they're things that potentially were able to be effectively dormant for a while. So mm. seeds, for example, spores that can lie in the ground undisturbed potentially for many years and then be rejuvenated when conditions are better. Mm. So this would have been a devastating time and i think a lot of the certainly areas around near the impact so in northern south america and the south, south um eastern us would have literally been devastated it would the scenes would have been apocalyptic mm -hmm. you would have had um rainfall of superheated rock you would have had tsunamis sweeping over the land surface it would have been a really horrible day to be on holiday around the gulf of mexico um, and even on the other side of the world, I mean, the, the, about the safest place to have been at the time would have been New Zealand, which is about as far away as you can get from hmm. where the meteorite hit. Even there, there's evidence of that event because we see uh, that same layer enriched in this rare element, iridium, being laid down in that part of the world too. And the animals and plants in that region are also suffering. So this is genuinely a global event, um, but obviously would have been instantly devastating for the animals within potentially thousands of kilometers from where it took place. And then the longer term effects of that happening would have spread around the world quite quickly, leading to this more kind of uh, potentially month to decade long decline in those other groups. Mm -hmm. We've, I mean, we've, we've really focused on the natural history here. We of course talked about the earliest dinosaurs. I'm also curious, what was the earliest dinosaur fossil discovered what species was it and, and where did that happen what sort of kicked off the entire field of of understanding dinosaur dinosaur uh, do we mean in terms of the the history of discovery yes the history of discovery what was the first dinosaur discovered when did that happen and and where was it 
Sure. So actually, this, as far as we know, in terms of documentation, this happened in Europe. It's entirely plausible that lots of people around the world are encountering dinosaur bones and finding them and being curious about them, mm. maybe even incorporating them into uh, their rituals or their belief systems. But in terms of actual written definite evidence of dinosaurs, it dates to the 17th century in Europe, uh, where we have, first of all, first books mass-produced thanks to the invention of the printing press and a widespread interest in natural history by those people that actually had the time and the kind of um, privilege to be able to sit down and think about things. So often people who were uh, vicars in country parts, uh, in, in kind of country parishes and um, members of the aristocracy who had lots of money and time and were able to be curious rather than having to do things. So the first illustration of a definite dinosaur fossil that we're aware of uh, is in a book uh, by a, a guy called Robert Plott, um, who illustrates a what we now know is the end of the thigh bone of a meat-eating dinosaur from the Jurassic of the UK. Uh, he didn't know what it was when he found it. He thought about it a lot. He initially thought it might be um, from a fossil elephant that would mm. maybe been brought over by the Romans to the UK when they were in uh, there. Uh, but very famously, he then decided for a slightly ruder interpretation of thinking that it was actually a giant fossilized human scrotum. Um, it has a very distinctive shape, uh, which may have led him to that conclusion. Uh, but it is very definitely the knee joint of a dinosaur. Um, and so this was actually formally named Scrotum Humanum in, in, <laughs> in, Robert, in, in Robert Plott's book. And there are also a number of other books published around the same time that figured what we think are probably dinosaur teeth, also from the same uh, these same Jurassic rocks in the UK. So, But they weren't recognised as dinosaurs at the time. They were just mm -hmm. curiosities. No mm -hmm. one really knew what they were. And it was not, it had to wait another hundred years or so when uh, more of these bones, these bones were being found, they were being talked about, but nobody had really idea of what they were. And in 1824, uh, a clergyman at Oxford University, William Buckland, uh, published his research on a set of bones found just outside Oxford and published the name Megalosaurus, which is the first dinosaur name to have ever been formally proposed. And that was based on a series of bones from rocks about 164 million years old, uh, just outside Oxford. And that really kick-started dinosaurs as a subject. So that was the first one to be named, was named in the UK. The next two to be named were also found in the UK. Um, and then a few more came in from continental Europe. Uh, but again, Although these things were being named, they were recognized as giant extinct reptiles, but it wasn't thought that they belonged together or they might be related mm -hmm. to each mm -hmm. other. And that insight came in the 1840s with the British comparative anatomist Sir Richard Owen, who realized that a lot of these fossils had things in common that linked them together as a group and that those things were very different from the features seen in living reptiles. So he was the one that coined the name dinosaur in 1842 and recognized them as a distinct group of animals. I see. So we know for sure that people were finding what we now know were dinosaur fossils in the 1600s, but it's not till the mid 1800s that people had a conception of the dinosaurs that we that, as we recognize it today. That's exactly right. And that comes down to the fact that it took a long time for people to accumulate the kind of knowledge to see what they were looking at. So mm -hmm. 
during that time, there'd become a greater uh, appreciation of the age of the earth, a greater appreciation of the structure and range of living animals as people started to investigate the animals around them in a more systematic way too. Mm-hmm. And as I say, it's almost certain that people are encountering dinosaur fossils around the world. Yeah. Um, I'll put before that, but these are the first times that uh, they're recognized as such. Are there any hints of what you just mentioned? So for example, you know, I can imagine, you know, going back as far as we might imagine, you know, some indigenous group living somewhere encounters a T-Rex skull or encounters some other impressive dinosaur specimen. And perhaps that is artistically represented in some kind of artifact. Are there any hints that maybe something like that once happened? There have been some suggestions about this, um, some of which are actually relatively convincing. So, for example, a scholar in the US called Adrian Meyer has suggested that uh, the the griffin myths that were very prevalent in the Middle East and in Europe in uh, kind of from um, the Middle Ages and medieval period and earlier may have had their origin by uh, travellers encountering the fossilised skeletons and skulls of dinosaurs along the Silk Road. Mm. So as the, uh, the Silk Road route goes through a number of very um, fossiliferous parts of the world, goes uh, through northwestern China and through Mongolia and, part, and the steppes of Central Asia. And it was suggested that these animals in particular, which have very parrot-like beaks and have uh, hoof-like claws on their feet, might have been a very good model for the kind of chimeric animal that, uh, that, uh, that they came up with for a griffin, which obviously has the head of an eagle and the body of a lion, which actually is not a big jump of the imagination for a protoceratops skeleton mm-hmm. so for example that that myth of the griffin might actually have its direct origin to the discovery of dinosaur fossils and an early interpretation mm-hmm. of what they might be like other cultures unfortunately generally don't have much written like lang- surviving written language um so and also a number of uh, cultures in places where dinosaur fossils are quite common so for example in the american um West didn't always have um, visual representations in their culture as well. They tended to be people that were often moving around, people that didn't leave a lot of um, obvious depictions of things that were not highly abstracted or mm-hmm. uh, that, that have survived at least. So there are very few um, records of what, if you like, pre scientific views of dinosaurs might have been, but there are hints mm-hmm. uh, that people were interacting with them and did know about them. So I do a lot of work in Southern Africa, for example, and some of the areas in which I work, some of the local people there, they know that these bones are in the ground. Uh, Some of those people don't have uh, an idea actually of what a dinosaur is because just the way they've been, um, just in the kind of way they've been uh, brought up, they've never been encountered uh, the idea of them in the media they've been seeing or in the in the um, kind of communities they've been living in. But they do recognise them as the bones of animals and they are often interpreted in their belief systems as part of kind of an ancestral animals that were living in this area. Mm. So there, there's definitely a conception that these are animals from uh, a deeper time Mm-hmm. Uh, than the time we're living in now, yeah. and that, that they're different from animals today. Yeah, and that that does kind of make sense because I think all human cultures have a a, a very potent sense of ancestors, our own ancestors. But it's it, it makes sense that it would be natural for them to think about animals that way as well. 
So, um, so there, there's clearly an appreciation of these types of objects and there are interpretations of what they are. But um, in terms of thinking of, if you like, historical depictions of those bones in mm -hmm. art or in other or in kind of ritual contexts, I, could, I don't think there are any good examples that are definitely of dinosaurs. I think there are some examples of things like that from um, more recently extinct animals, things like mammoths and woolly rhinos and mm -hmm. so on. Uh, but dinosaurs, not so far as far as we're aware. And another reason, actually, is a lot of the richest dinosaur grounds are genuinely areas that are not particularly um, nice to live in. Yeah, um, They're dry. They're often difficult to farm. They might have low densities of game. Um, so they're not necessarily areas that, they're, that people are doing more than traveling through mm -hmm. rather than living in. Mm -hmm. uh, but very famously, for example, some... Um, People living in Siberia used to make their houses of uh, mammoth bones. Hmm. Um, so they were using kind of those paleontological resources for a very practical purpose. And they were aware of the mammoths being frozen in the permafrost and uh, made use of those resources in their day-to-day -day lives. So speaking of, of mammoths or just the general notion of something that's more recently extinct and therefore better preserved, I know that there's very, very good specimens of mammoths that are I think literally frozen and more or less intact, where you do start to get things like DNA and you do start to ask these Jurassic Park-like questions about bringing uh, a, a creature like that back. Is, is that possible with a mammoth or a more recently extinct species? And do you see any scientific value in doing something like that? Well, we have, uh, because they're so recent in time for us and because they're so well-preserved, we know a reasonable amount about the genomics of some extinct Ice Age mammals. So we have a reasonable amount of uh, knowledge of the uh, genome of mammoths and of woolly rhinos and of things that are more recently extinct like moas and also even obviously of Neanderthals mm -hmm. and some other ancient human species as well. So this has been an emerging field over the last 20 years and there have been huge technical advancements that have allowed people to do that. And there are efforts underway in some parts of the world to try and recreate mammoths. So I know there have been um, serious efforts to do this in Russian uh, laboratories to do to use what we know about mammoth genetics to use a I think usually an Indian elephant surrogate um, to try and bring mammoths back and the reason for using an Indian elephant is that they're actually of the two living elephant species they're the closer relatives mm. to mammoths uh, so it would thought that they have a higher chance of success um, so one of the key technical barriers to doing this actually is not so much knowing about the sequence of mammoth dna as to know more about mammoth pregnancy mm. and indeed the pregnancy of living elephants which uh there's a lot of work that still needs to be done on the basic physiology of how um elephant pregnancy works that you would have to solve before you could even then start to think about the next step of using one as a surrogate for cloning a mammoth. So there have been attempts. I don't, none of them have been, have heralded any success at all at the moment. And I can, there, are, I think I have a conflicted idea about whether this is a good idea or not. I think one of my it's not really, it's, it seems increasingly clear that mammoths became extinct because of natural climate change. Mm -hmm. Humans may have helped hasten it along, uh, but they were adapted for a much colder world and that colder world is gone. Uh, so it's not simply that uh, they were hunted by voracious packs of 
early humans desperate to kill every big hairy elephant that they ever met. It's actually because the uh, ecosystems they left in contracted in size and ultimately vanished. So we would be bringing back an animal, if you like, that would not necessarily be um, a good fit for the ecosystems that are in those parts of the world now. I could be wrong. It could be that they would actually thrive in those ecosystems, but they were animals that actually have no, not much of a moral responsibility for their disappearance. Mm-hmm. These are things that are generally probably doing quite badly because of natural causes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think there's necessarily a strong moral case that we should bring some of these things back because we were involved in their extinction. And in fact, the moral case then is, are you bringing these animals back into an unfamiliar world where they're going to be stressed? Um, so it's for me, it's a, I really like the idea of mammoth step coming back and that mammoths were amazing ecosystem engineers. They used to keep those environments free of trees. They used to uh, uh, basically cultivate those areas to uh, suit themselves by transporting seeds around and fertilizing them with their dung and all those kinds of things. And it would be amazing to see them roaming about again. But um, we probably kidding ourselves if we think we're recreating the primeval state of those areas simply by putting a few genetically engineered mammals back in them. Mm-hmm. I think if we were going to make a moral case of it, there are cases of animals that we made extinct more recently mm-hmm. uh, through hunting or through habitat destruction. And I think things like the idea of trying to use genetic technologies to save animals like, say, the northern white rhino, uh, potentially quite morally praiseworthy. Um, whereas for things that have been long extinct, uh, the moral question might be the other way around in the sense that are we bringing animals that are not adapted to the environments that are around now and in fact creating stress for them and potentially stress for the other animals that do live there now that aren't used to them being around. So it's, a, it's some interesting moral questions to throw around as well as the very real technical questions involved in doing that kind of work. Mm-hmm. What... Um very briefly what's your own origin story as a paleontologist were you just uh you know a little boy who loved dinosaurs and and just stuck with it or or did you get into paleontology somewhat later in life i was i'm one of those individuals that started with dinosaurs at the age of six so um my mum brought me the ladybird book of dinosaurs and i took from that point onwards i was always very keen on history and science when i was a kid and growing up and I had various times when I thought I might try and do other things. I thought I might be an astronomer at one point, And then I realized I wasn't interested enough in maths to do that. Um, I, another point, I thought I might want to be a veterinary surgeon. Uh, and then I realized I wasn't interested enough in animals biting, um, biting me when I was trying to look after them or accidentally um, dispatching them on the on the. Uh, table in the surgery while I was trying to do my best to care for them. Mm-hmm. So eventually, um, uh, the idea of dinosaurs, which had always been with me, became uh, the most attractive one. And that's partly because I am still a very much interested in living animals as well. Um, and dinosaurs were amazing animals. And studying them means that not only are you thinking about really cool animals, but you're also doing a lot of problem solving. And I like the kind of detective work that we have to do to use the incomplete evidence that we have in order to build the pictures up. Uh, And that kind of combining lots of different lines of evidence and looking for patterns and trying to come up with the cleverest deductions from the least amount of evidence is very appealing. Mm 
A mm-hmm. uh, couple of quick questions about present day paleontology. Um, one is, you know, I would love to just know very briefly, like, w- what are a couple of the hot topics right now that you know paleontologists are really keen to work out that we think we're we're going to solve, but we haven't figured out yet. And two, how many of you are there? Are are there like <laughs> yearly paleontology conferences where thousands of people are getting together, or or is it a few dozen individuals who who are like the big thinkers? So if we think about paleontology as a whole, uh, so everything to do with the history of life, there are lots of different questions to do with the different groups of animals and plants around mm-hmm. us. I would say one of the biggest areas that people are working in at the moment is trying to get as much evidence from the fossil record as possible to know what we might face in the current climate crisis. Mm. So obviously, through the extinction of life, we've seen different groups come and go. We've seen them expand and contract in their geographic range because temperatures have changed, the amount of rain has changed, geography has changed. And what a large number of us are doing are gathering those data to see if we can baseline the kinds of natural changes we've seen in the past and what happened during those periods of change to give us some idea of what might happen during the current accelerated period of change that we've seen now due to human impacts on the environment. So a lot of my colleagues are working on questions related to that, in particular colleagues that work on, for example, microfossils, which have these very, very detailed, long-term, fine-grained records of response to change, are key in working out what some of these things are. And similarly, I mean, I, although I work on dinosaurs, which had relatively little to do with that question, I've also worked, for example, on fossil turtles, where we can look at what turtles have done through time in response to different climate shifts and actually use that to predict what living turtles might do in a warming world. Hmm. Um, So a large amount of the effort in paleontology as a subject is going towards that. And I would say there's also, if you like, the traditional strength of paleontology, which still continues a lot, is also just trying to work out how the major groups of animals and plants are related to each other and what that pattern of life overall looks like to work out uh, is life increasing in diversity all the time? Does it go through highs and lows? Um, how quickly uh, do we get new biodiversity being generated? Those kinds of questions. So those are the really big questions in the subject. And then there's sort of smaller questions that we do day to day, like to do with the lifestyle of the animals and plants, to do with um, their detailed anatomy, to do with um, how they're related to each other. Mm-hmm. And and how how big is the field of paleontology generally? Is it thousands of individuals? Is it hundreds? I think when we take all paleontologists around the world into consideration, we're talking uh, small thousands. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the biggest convention in vertebrate paleontology, so dealing with fish, amphibians, reptiles in the world, routinely gets about a thousand delegates each year, uh, which is about 50-50 students and 50-50 professionals. So in turn, and in terms of the people that work on dinosaurs around the world, people that are actually in tenured permanent jobs, I would say there are probably about 200 of us Hmm. um, around the world um, spread almost internationally uh, with large concentrations in the US and Canada and Argentina and Western Europe. Uh, but there, there were enough of us that we more or less can know everybody by on first name terms. <laughs> what, um, you know, just very broadly speaking in your entire career, everything that you've learned, you've thought so much about 
natural history and things in the past and extinctions and radiations, what kind of perspective has that given you about the present moment for humanity? I think one of the things it gives you is a certain sense of um, hubris. Like we actually see through the history of life, groups becoming unbelievably successful, dominant, and then for reasons beyond their control, they just disappear really quickly. And I think that tells us a really strong story that when we are smugly sitting, thinking we're pinnacles of creation, that actually um, we haven't been around that long and we're relatively fragile in ways that we probably don't appreciate in terms of these great planetary kind of crises. Um, And as a result, it gives a sense, it does give you a slight humbling sense to know that things can go drastically wrong really quickly, even if you think everything is actually fine. So I think that sense of um, uh, a general sense of how fragile life is, is something that comes out of thinking about that very long-term perspective. But more positively, the other thing, and it sounds terrible, but it genuinely gives me a kind of warm glow, is actually the interrelatedness of life. Like we share so much in common with other species. We share their environments, but we also share their DNA. Um, You can't see it, but where I'm sitting at the moment, I have a house plant a couple of feet from me. I mean, I share a lot of my DNA with that plant. Um, We all have a single common ancestor going back years and years. We have a single common ancestor with apes. We have one with other mammals. We have one with other things that lay eggs. We have ones with other things with backbones going back. And that connectedness is actually a really positive feeling that you're part of this kind of greater and really complex whole. Final question. Jurassic Park. Great movie or does it just irritate you? Uh, I actually, great movie. I really enjoyed it. So the original movie came out when I was uh, still an undergraduate student. Uh, I went to see it immediately when it came out and i also have very warm feelings about it because it actually got me my first paid job in paleontology i ended up being hired as an intern for that summer when the movie was released to support a colleague of mine (laughs) who needed someone to help field all of the inquiries they were getting that summer so i'm naturally very inclined to have warm feelings about it because i actually earned money as a result but generally i think it's a great movie at the time they did work very hard to try and make the animals look like really good living breathing animals they took it seriously and the premise of the story is a really clever one uh, idea of getting dna out of mosquitoes and cloning dinosaurs it's unfortunately technically almost certainly impossible at least at the moment uh, and probably quite probably never will happen um, probably shouldn't either i mean the, the movie itself says we really shouldn't do this it's just dumb right um but um the idea is quite elegant um, mm-hmm. And in terms of uh, getting people interested in the subjects, it was an amazing ambassador. Um, and for a lot of these things, some of my colleagues do get annoyed when they see represented or they see things that are factually inaccurate. Uh, and you understand why, because it's close to people's heart. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's a story. It's a movie. It's fine. You know, we know it's made up. Uh, it's not a documentary. Um, <laughs> So I think you have to keep those things separate in your head. And as an adventure movie, I think it's still a great movie. And I'd be lying if I said I didn't watch it from time to time. (laughs) I don't sit there watching it every week wearing kind of an Alan Grant hat and things like that. (laughs) But 
it is still a really, I think, a really entertaining movie. Um, uh, and despite all of the criticisms you might have of some of the content, I don't think that takes away from the fact that it's, it's a lot of fun. Well, Professor Paul Barrett, do you have any final thoughts on the general subject that, that you might give to a general audience before we go? I think one of the key thing to say would be that paleontology is actually one of those scientists where uh, sciences where you don't need to be a specialist to contribute. It's still very much the case that if you're a keen fossil collector and you have sharp eyes and that you are curious, you can actually still make a contribution. You don't necessarily need a particle collider or a lab or lots of expensive machinery. What you need are good eyes and ability to walk around and spot interesting things on the floor. And they can still actually make really key contributions to the subject uh, without uh formally and professionally being a part of it. So paleo is one of those sciences where we actually have a very strong amateur community that interacts very closely with a professional community and actually has a very good relationship with it. So it is genuinely one of those areas where you can infuse people hands-on without having to go through extensive training or, or having to get expensive grants or fancy degrees. And you can still actually make a real contribution. And the other part of it is if you are interested in finding fossils, if you're the first person to find a fossil, the first human that's ever seen that thing since it was buried however many millions of years it was ago. And that's a moment of pure individual discovery, the like of which a lot of people will never experience. You're literally seeing that insight into a, a vanished world, and you're the first person to see it. And there aren't many other people who get to do that kind of thing. So that's a really fun reason to be a paleontologist. Professor Paul Barrett, thank you for your time. No, pleasure. Thanks very much for the invitation. Thank you.